turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> so we get a bit of a late start this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll start reading in verse 1. I'll just read verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 1, starting verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we read and hear and discuss study, examine your word, that your spirit would be taking your word and examining us, that we would understand what it is that your apostle, by the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, has written not only for these Hebrew Christians in the first century, but for your church in all ages. We pray that we would know who the Son is and what it is that's being professed about him. And that knowing him, we would trust him. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I think uh, people are often surprised. I, I'm, when I say people, I mean Christian people. They're often surprised to hear that our central profession as Christians is uh, offensive to people. That you've lived so long in a Christian culture, if you will, a culture that has put Christianity at its mainstream for centuries, that it becomes sort of surprising for us to hear that what we actually believe is our central confession is offensive to people. It's offensive to them for two reasons. One, it's offensive to them because what we are saying about man and them in particular. And two, it's offensive because what we are saying about God and who he is, and his nature. It offends people, particularly when they understand the implications of it. I think it's easy as Christians to be mealy-mouthed about what we believe, um, you know, sort of talk with marbles in our mouths so that people don't quite understand what the implications of what we're saying are because we're afraid they might be offended, or they, more importantly, that they might not like us. I have a friend who says that God spoke to him God spoke to me, and I don't need Jesus to be saved. That's what he told me. He's told me that multiple times. Now, he he is one of the more self-professedly immoral, anti-law people I personally have known. Um, He's a generally decent guy, but his standard of what is right or wrong is him. And he'll tell you that. God has no law. God has no requirements of him. God has no son. He doesn't need Jesus. He had God speak directly to him and tell him all that. Now, I told him, then God didn't speak to you. 
Oh, the Spirit of God spoke to me. I said, no, some spirit may have spoken to you, but it wasn't any spirit that is holy. Now he called me arrogant and began to attack me. And that's fine, but, but here's one of the problems or, if you will, kind of the things that we can tend to do in that situation. I could say, as he attacks me and calls me arrogant, oh no, I must have done something wrong. I must have done something wrong because he's upset. And if he's upset, that means I must not have been winsome enough. I must not have communicated properly enough. I I must not have done enough to win him over. But listen, his attacks do not mean that I was doing something wrong. They mean, in this case, that I was being clear. And that he was getting the clear implications of what I was saying. And the clear implication was, because he does not have the true God, he is condemned. He was gathering that quite clearly. The clear implication was that I was claiming that I know not only is there one true God with one true way of salvation, but that I claim to know it. And that I claim to be right, exclusive, telling the truth, and and he is wrong. I have another friend. Um, who, has, who, who would be offended by what I'm going to preach today for a different reason. He um, has served as, um, in a temporary basis in times, as a Muslim imam. He has served as the emir of, of the Islamic community here. He is a conservative Sunni Muslim, um, and he's a friend of mine. We meet. He actually came today. Um, to hear me preach. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm being accountable for what I represent is his view, right? He's offended by what we're teaching for a different reason. He's not too worried about the personal offense. He's worried that what we're doing is offending God. What we're saying about Jesus being the son of God is an offense to God. He would reject what we confess about Jesus. I'm not saying he rejects Jesus. He will call Jesus the Messiah. He will say that Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead, to, 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 if you will, rule on earth. He would say he's a messenger of God. He's a prophet of God. He would honor Jesus in much of his language in the way that he spoke about him. But when we begin to cross over to what we say about Jesus, that he's the eternal son of God, now we're committing an offense against God. He does so because, incidentally, the Quran rejects what we say. In Surah 112, which is referenced as the purity of faith, In the Quran, it says this, in the name of Allah, most gracious, most merciful, say, he is Allah, the one. Allah, the eternal, absolute. They are affirming their monotheism. They believe there is one God. He alone is God, and all polytheism is damnable, idolatry. Now listen to what they say next. He begetteth not. In other words, he has no son. Nor is he begotten. No, you can't say God begets. 
The Father, we would say, the Father is eternally begetting, and we would say the Son is eternally begotten. They're saying you cannot say of God that he begets, nor that he is begotten, and there is none like unto him. So they are affirming monotheism and expressly denying Trinitarianism. Expressly. In other words, if you say that God begat a son, you're professing a false God. Now, he and I will have this conversation about the fact that you're wrong about God. No, you're wrong about God. And we are not personally offended in our conversations, but we have it in all seriousness, knowing that we're talking about what we believe God is. Who is he? And it's not okay to be willy-nilly about how you talk about who God is, to pretend like it doesn't matter. It's not weighty. He's not just a subject of our discourse. He is, and there is no other. Yet here we have in Hebrews 1 um, this saying, this saying Hebrews 1 begins with, this sentence, this four-verse sentence that Hebrews 1 begins with is arguing that the supreme revelation of the Father is in his Son or by his Son. Look there, long ago, at many times, in many ways, that's speaking of the Old Testament and the various ways in which God spoke. Notice God spoke. Long ago, at many times, God spoke. Now, how did he speak in the Old Testament? He spoke to our fathers, that's to whom he spoke, and he spoke by the prophets. That's by whom he spoke. But look, but in these last days, in the eschaton, in the fullness of time, now that Jesus has come, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then he goes on to give seven affirmations about his son. His son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. His son, through whom he also created the, the world. His son, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. His son, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. His son, he is the one who made purification for sins and after making purifications, who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His son, he is the one who's become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And as he gives us all of these affirmations about his son, what is the ground of this superior revelation of God by his son? How does he ground those affirmations? How does he ground them? The author of Hebrews has given seven descriptions. How does he ground them? He grounds them or brings them us to the pinnacle, the center of those descriptions in verse 3. So look there. He, verse 3, is the radiance of the glory of God. That's speaking of the Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. There's this kind of poetic parallelism here. You can see the poetic parallelism. Parallelism. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. It's right at the center of this sentence. We are being brought to the ground of every other description of the Son. All the other descriptors you have of the Son are grounded here. He is providing us with, 
what we might call weighty and significant spiritual realities. And we want to understand those realities for the Spirit gave them to us to be understood. And to be understood at least to the degree that we are able. Here's what I want to say about this. It's important because as we come to texts like these, we begin to be brought to spiritual realities that um, we're expected by the Holy Spirit to be able to understand the positive affirmations he's telling us about who God is. Um, but we are also expected to, when we come to the end of the text, to sort of come to the end of what we have to say. Because the fact is, is that you get to these affirmations and you realize that God is incomprehensible. That he's beyond anything human language can contain. That human language is really, um, is the way he communicates with us. He communicates with us through human language, like the printed page that we have here, through prophets, through his son, etc. But when he does that, it's really always, in some sense, not quite worthy of him. It tells us the truth about him that we can know, but not necessarily the truth about him as he is in himself, because it's too much for creatures to understand the creator in the fullest sense. So the question is then, the Holy Spirit is communicating to us truth about him, so what is the Holy Spirit communicating to us about the Son? And I want to meditate on three truths in these two phrases and then provide some applications. So three truths in these two phrases— in the middle of verse 3, or at the beginning of verse 3 there, and then provide a couple of applications. Here are the three truths that are being communicated in these two phrases. Here's the first one. This verse speaks of two persons in God. Hear that? Now, I'm not denying that there are three persons in God, but this verse is not directly talking about that. We could go there by implication, but we're not going to. I want to talk just about the two persons in God that this verse is addressing. The Father... And the Son. Look, look there. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, He, that being what you see in verse 2, when it says He is spoken by His Son, you now pick up a descriptor of that Son. He, in other words, the Son, grammatically, is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, He's the radiance of the glory of God. We know that this is speaking of God in the person of the Father. He is the God who has a son. Therefore, he is the God who is father. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And he, if you notice the next phrase, he, or excuse me, he is the exact imprint. You would assume that in there the, grammatically. He's the exact imprint of his nature. The son is the exact imprint of his, the father's nature or person, depending on how you would translate that word, it's really neither here nor there for our purposes today. It's pretty technical use. But here's, here's what I want you to get a hold of here. There are two persons being mentioned here. Two um, personal relations who subsist in one another, if we want to be more technical. The two persons being mentioned here, the Father and the Son. There is a distinction, but not a division between them. The Father and the Son are distinct as to their persons, but not divided as to their essence. Two, here's the second thing. So two persons, Father and Son. Just keep that in mind. I'll give you a summary in a minute. Two, this verse speaks of one action. So I said it speaks of two persons or two personal relations. And I would say this verse speaks of one action. That one action describes how the Father 
and the Son are related to one another. Now, if you were reading technical theological jargon, we're talking about the order of relation. Okay? But it's talking about how they're related to one another. This action is. Listen to the action. He is the, here comes the action, the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God. The Father, here's the action, the Father radiates the Son. Notice this language. It speaks of the Father as the fountain or source from which the Son pours forth. He radiates. He shines forth like the rays of light from the sun. He's radiating forth from the Father. If you think about a sunlight's beams, okay, a sun's beams, sorry, or a sunlight. The sunlight that comes from the sun is the sun, is it not? It's the sun radiating forth. That's the kind of comparison he's using here. So the Father, in this one action, is we're being told, he radiates the Son. The Son is himself sourced in the Father, radiating out from the Father, shining like beams of light from our Son, if you will. Third, so that's two persons, one action. Okay, Father, Son, one action. Father, radiates the sun, if you will, okay? Third, this, you're going to be like, we're at the third point already? My goodness. But we'll have more. This verse speaks of the similarity between the two persons. So we have two distinct persons, one common action, okay, or work, because all the works of God are undivided, because God himself is undivided. We have one God, so his work's always undivided. His will is always undivided. But we have one common action, two distinct persons. And notice there's a similarity between these two persons. The Son, it says, he says, and the, if you look at verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. While the Son is not the Father, the Son shares his nature. Um couple of things here. One, an exact imprint, if you think about imprinting a coin, right? You imprint an image on a coin, and that person's image is there showing forth. You think about that kind of language. The son is the exact imprint of the father. He's, he's showing you the image of the father, if you will. Okay, two, the other part I want you to understand about that is he's the exact imprint of the father's um, hypostasis in Greek. That's what it says. That's his substance. To be really non-technical, his stuff, whatever God's stuff is. If you think this is material stuff and whatever God's stuff is, I don't even know how to talk about that except to say that it's beyond anything that we can possibly comprehend. Whatever his nature or substance is, Christ the Son is the exact imprint of that. The Son is an exact representation of the Father. He shares the Father's likeness. Further, the, um, Hebrews 1 points out that the Son shares everything with the Father. Look at all the stuff that the Son shares with the Father in Hebrews 1. Look at verse 8. But of the Son, he says. Now he says, he never says these things to angels. He only says these things to the Son. Of the Son, he says, and by the way, when he says angels, he's talking about a particular ki- kind of messenger. He never says that about these kinds of messengers. Angels, that word in Greek can mean also be translated messenger. Never speaks of these kinds of messengers this way. But of the Son, This messenger, he says this. Of the Son, he says, 
Notice verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Father says of the Son, God. He calls him God. That's a quotation from Psalm 45. Verse 6. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is that when David pens the psalm in Psalm 45, that David is overhearing, if you will, the Father speaking to the Son. Calling him God. Look at verse 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. So the Father is calling the Son both God and Lord. The Son is sharing his Father's name. Now look down at verse 11. The Son shares his Father's eternal and immutable life. The Father is eternal and immutable, as is the Son. One eternal, immutable God. Look at what it says in verse 11. They will pair. Oh, actually, let's just read verse 10 through 12. And you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. The Son shares his Father's eternal and immutable life. The Son shares his Father's divine act of creation and provision or sustaining. If you look at verse 2, through whom also, last phrase, through whom also he created the world. He created the world through the Son. And the end of verse 3, or actually the middle of verse 3, and he, the Son, upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the Son shares his Father's name. The Son shares his Father's eternal and immutable life. The Son shares his Father's divine act of creating and sustaining. The Son shares his Father's throne. Verse 8, your throne. Of the Son, he says, your throne. Verse 13, in the application of Psalm 110, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is why Jesus can say, and does say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. This is why Jesus can say in Matthew 11 that no one knows the Father except the Son, nor the Son except the Father, and anyone to whom he chooses to reveal him. He is the one who reveals the Father. So here's the summary. The Father, here's what we know, if you will, in summary. The Father and the Son are two distinct persons. Two distinct persons. The Father and the Son share the same essence or nature. There's one God. One God. The Father is the originating source. This is the third thing. The Father is the originating source from whom the Son eternally radiates or shines forth the one whom the Son is representing. Now, I'm putting that in as simple a language as I can. It's much, much more nuanced than that. But the Bible consistently uses language that helps us shape our understanding of this. The language used of the Son is important. One, the fact that he's called Son, that language is immediately important. But here's the language I want to deal with first. Um, He is called the wisdom of God, the word of God, the exemplar or image of God. 
Let's look at some of those texts. So keep your hand in Hebrews 1 and turn back, if you will, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He, that's referring back to the Son. If you look to verse 13, He, the Father, has delivered us from the main of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. In whom? In the Son. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, the Son, is the image, the icon is the Greek word there, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the prototokos, the one who is supreme over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image bearer, of God who is making visible the God whom you cannot see. You cannot see God. And Christ is making him visible to you. You hear that language about him? Okay, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You just keep going toward the Gospels. Um... Until you run into 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. Well, I will start reading in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You see how he does his ministry? He makes an open statement of the truth. doesn't tamper with God's word. He isn't interested in in somehow winning people over with tricks, right? Like some kind of salesman. He's just going to make an open statement of the truth. Now look what he says. And even if our gospel, our good news, our message is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that being Satan, it's a way of speaking about his rule here. In this, their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the good news, of the glory of Christ. And who is Christ? Who is the image, the icon of God. He's the light, the radiating of the glory of God. He's the image, the icon of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's a reference to Genesis 1-3, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And where has he given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. Now look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Keep going now to the fourth gospel. John chapter 1. And verse 1. In the beginning 
was the Word. And the Word was with God. There's their distinction. The Word with God. They're speaking of Him as Father, really. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's their shared nature. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He's the Word of God. He is the one God, but He is a distinct person, and what He does is He shows you the Father. He reveals the Father. He's the image bearer of the invisible God. He is the Word of God. He's originated from the Father. The Father speaks the Son. That's how this language is being used. The Son is the Word of God. He's showing you the Father. When you hear the Son, you hear the Father. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh, took on humanity. Philippians 2 addresses that as well. Became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled with us. He was God with us, the Emmanuel principle. Tabernacled with us, God with us. Now look what it says. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, and unfortunately in the ESV translation they've done you a disservice, as of the only begotten Son from the Father, is what it should say. The only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's the only begotten Son from the Father. Now, look down at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Has ever seen God. Now look what the next phrase says. The only God, also should be translated, the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side or in the Father's bosom, He has made Him known. So who makes known the Father? Has anyone ever seen the Father? No. Who makes Him known? His eternally begotten Son. The Son whom He begat makes Him known. His Word reveals Him. His image bearer makes Him visible. Notice here, and in verse 18, the Son, in verse 14 and verse 18, the Son is called the only begotten Son, or the only begotten God. The Father is eternally Father, and thus He eternally begets His Son. Now listen, I begat a Son. Do you know that? I begat a Son. Right? I begat a Son. His name is Jared. I begat a Son. I am a Father. But, please hear this. I was once not a Father. Being a father is not of the essence of who I am. I became a father when I begat a son. I'm a creature. I change. I'm mutable. I was once not a father. I was still a man. Right? I know the culture's confused about that, but I was still a man. Once not a father. I never had to become a father. I would still be a man. But I changed when I begat a son. I became a father. God is eternally the father. He didn't become the father. He is immutable. He is not a creature. He does not change. 
He didn't become the Father. The Son is eternally Son. Thus, He is eternally begotten. It's not there's a, that there was a time when the Son was not, and He became, or the Father was not, and He became. It is that the Father is always eternally begetting His Son, because He is by nature a Father. And it is that the Son is eternally begotten, because He is eternally the Son. Now, how do you wrap your mind around that? I'm not going to ask you to. Look at Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8, because I want you to see where this wisdom, Christology, if you will, gets picked up, where it gets picked up from. Now, it doesn't only get picked up from Proverbs 8. By the first century, you also have some developments from the book of wisdom, chapter 7, particularly verse 26. The book of wisdom is in what we would call um, the apocryphal text, those 12 books that the Roman Catholics would hold to. Um, those, those books, one of them is the book of wisdom, and we get some wisdom Christology, if you will, developing even from there in chapter 7. That language gets picked up. That was, by the way, when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, we call the Septuagint, they also translated the apocryphal text. Now, Jesus never affirms the apocryphal text as part of the Word of God or the canon. However, that doesn't mean they didn't read them or reference them or see them as useful. There's a difference between seeing a book as helpful and useful and seeing it as the Word of God, right? You guys read all kinds of books you think are helpful and useful, but you don't call them the Bible, right? Okay, so what we're saying here is that they, they developed some from there, but I'm not going to have time to go there. I want to look instead at Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 22. Jason read this to you this morning. Verse 22, the Lord, that's Yahweh, verse 22, possessed me. That word possessed me can also be translated fathered me. Now the me there comes from, refers you back to verse 12, which is wisdom. The father possessed or the Lord possessed or fathered me, wisdom, at the beginning of his work. Now we have to understand in its original context that we're not to understand, we're not to think that somehow the, there was a, once a time in which the father didn't have wisdom. God was unwise, and he thought, I'll be wise now, okay? And he made himself wise. That's not what happened. It's a manner of speech. The Lord possessed me or fathered me at the beginning of his work. In other words, in eternity past, the father was always wise, and his wisdom is the son, the first of his acts of old, ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. There, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. In other words, I was eternally brought forth. Now this word, verse 25, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. In the Greek Septuagint, that's the word from which we would get the word begotten. I was begotten before creation. I was begotten. He's eternally begotten. Now look what the eternally begotten wisdom of God does. Before he made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, verse 27, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the, worth, of the earth, sorry, then I was beside him. 
like a master workman, and I was daily his delight. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my door. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. The Son is the wisdom of God, the Word of God, the eternally begotten of God. And what does the Son do? He reveals the Father to you. Now, I know this is mostly unfamiliar ground in the way of thinking for most people, but I hope you're catching the pattern. Hope you're gathering what's being said. The Father and the Son are one God, one being. Now, I'm not dealing with the Holy Spirit today. I would also include him, but they are one God, one being. The Father and the Son are distinct persons. It's kind of a sloppy word, but it's the best I have. If I I could use words that aren't going to help you, you know, subsistent relations, you're going to be like, what's that mean, okay? So, distinct persons. The Father's action is to radiate the Son, to speak the Son, to provide the Son as an exemplar of who He is, to eternally beget the Son. The Son's action... One work, the Son's action is to radiate, to speak, to be the example of the Father, to be eternally begotten of the Father. The Son is eternally one with the Father, and He is the revelation of the Father. Now with this in mind, you read Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us By his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. It's fitting that he would be the heir of all things. For he created all things, through whom he also also created the world. And it's fitting that he would create the world through him, for he is the exemplar of the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Did you, did you hear the impact of this sentence? Yes, God spoke in the prophet in the Old Testament by the prophets, but in these last days he spoke by his son. The word was spoken throughout the whole Old Testament, but now the word has become incarnate in his son. God's glory was seen in the Old Testament in types and shadows and promises and prophecies, and theophanies. But now, his glory is radiating by his Son. God provided images and examples and revelations of himself in the Old Testament in the language we have, but now the exact imprint of his nature has come in his Son. So what's the application of all this? I just want to make two quick points. Because you can see that what we're claiming is is a pretty astounding claim. 
It's a first principle, fundamental kind of claim. If we're wrong, if the New Testament, and I think I'm faithfully representing the New Testament, if the New Testament is wrong, then we are blaspheming God. If what the church has confessed for centuries is wrong, then we're eternally condemned. So what's the application? Because I believe this is the word of God and it tells us the truth about Jesus. What's the application? First, if you do not believe in the Son, you have never heard the Father speak. Never heard him speak. Jesus himself says that. John chapter 5 and verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. How do we, does Jesus know this? For, here's the explanatory clause. For you do not believe the one whom he sent You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's saying he is the wisdom of God in Proverbs 8 to whom you must come for life. He is the one speaking to whom you must come for life. You can search the Old Testament all you want, but if you don't come to Christ, if you don't come to believe he is the Son, then you do not have the Father. You've never heard him speak. You do not have life. Listen, Jesus is quite literally saying if you do not trust him, if you do not listen to him, if you do not look to him, then you've never heard God speak. Never. He is the Word of God, the image of God, the radiance of the glory of God. You see the Father by his light, or you don't see the Father at all. You hear the Father by his voice, or you don't hear the Father at all. You recognize the Father by his image, or you don't recognize the Father at all. You exalt him as the Son of God, himself divine, or you have never exalted God at all. You can read the Old Testament and the New Testament all you want. But if that study does not lead you to trust in, exalt, and worship the Son for who He is, then you've never really read nor studied this book in truth. In other words, you either have Jesus, the Son of God, as your Lord and Savior, or you're condemned for your sins. You have no Savior. But if you do trust Him, you have everlasting life. That is a pretty astounding claim. It's incredibly exclusive. Second, the only way to come to the Father is through the Son. It's last application. Only way to come to the Father is through the Son. Listen to what's said in John chapter 14. You guys are very familiar with this text, so I don't have to do a lot of explaining, but I'm going to read a little past where you normally stop. Let not your hearts be troubled, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, there's a universal negation. No one comes to the Father. Here comes the exception clause, except through me. No one. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. How can that be? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? That's what I mean when I say subsisting personal relations. They subsist in one another. They're one being or essence or substance. Two persons here, in this case, the Father and the Son. And the Son shows you the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe? I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Do you hear the exclusivity in this passage? You can't come to the Father except through the Son. This is absolute and utter exclusivity. We are saying that Jesus is the Son of God, the radiance of, the, of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. We are saying all things were created through him and he upholds all things by the word of his power. We are saying he is the eternally begotten son, the word of God, the wisdom of God, the revelation of God. We are saying that he is God himself, eternal, immutable, holy, and good. We are saying no one can know the Father but through him. We're saying there's salvation in no other name, that apart from him, all men stand condemned, and we're worshiping him. Christian, it's imperative that we confess Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, together with, with Christians throughout the centuries. And to that end, we began the service with an Nicene Creed, and I'm going to end my sermon with it. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and our salvation, for our salvation. He came down from heaven. 
He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic, that means universal, an apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. This is our God. Behold him. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would be exalted in the proclamation of your Son as we look to him, trust him, knowing that our salvation is only in him. We pray that you would apply this to our hearts and our minds, that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. That you would teach us in our own imaginations not to go beyond the word, but to fully affirm what you affirm, to deny what you deny, and not to run off into our own imaginations, to stop our mouths where your spirit has stopped speaking by your son. We pray that you would cause those who don't know Jesus, who are not looking to him, that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe, that you would raise them from spiritual death to spiritual life through faith in your son. We pray that you would be honored above all in Jesus' name. Amen.